When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. The hour is upon us. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined once again by Tony Greer of Morning Navigator. And it's a perfect setup for a TG Tuesday. Lots of news flow out today. The U.S. has released 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Looks like we've got some significant movement right now on oil prices. WTI on the day, it looks like it's up 2.6%, bouncing around here at the close. I see 78.74 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate Crew January 22 futures contracts, moving into the two-year yield. Boy, we've really seen some motion on this. It's 61.2 bips right now. That's over 10 basis points here, uh, basically since close of business Friday. What an incredible day to have Tony Greer here. Tony, welcome back to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. What a tremendous welcoming there, Slash. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. What unbelievable markets we've got to deal with today, huh? Yeah, so jump right in, man. Tell us, what are you looking at? What's been going on? Well, I mean, this morning, the SPR release was really a sight to behold. You know, I mean, I I was honestly mentally sort of fading the chances that this was actually going to happen in the last 24 hours. Although, you know, the details started to come out that, you know, all of a sudden it's going to be 50 million barrels. And that's exactly what we got today. And I was a little bit in shock. Um, I was a little bit in shock because I didn't think that was, number one, a timely sale, number one, a good position to put the U.S. in. And uh, that was number two, excuse me. And number three, just positioning where the oil market is right now. I'm getting set up to buy it again. So I'm looking at the administration this morning going, oh, no, don't do that. You know, but as it turns out, it's another one of those energy policies of the Biden administration that is going to weaken our energy position and weaken us as a nation. And we're going to do it anyway. So we've got 50 million barrels of SPR sale, 32 million are on swap. So those are going to come right back. We've got an outright sale of 18 million barrels. Worth noting the distinction that we are selling sour crude, right, which is um, higher in sulfur content. U.S. refiners don't buy as much of that because it costs too much to crack into heat and gasoline. That's usually a product that China and India consume. So that's where there's like a tablespoon of common sense within this whole um, disastrous decision. But if you ask me, what are we going to do to affect the price of gasoline if we are selling 18 million barrels of a strategic reserve, meaning something that we might need in a time of, um, you know, desperate need like a time of war, like a time of energy shortage, who knows? 
Yeah. But we're letting all of that right out of the um, hey, Tony, let me let me just jump country. in real yeah. quick. There's, there's a lot of context to give here. I know there are people who are watching us who are serious oil traders. There are also people watching us who may be hearing the letters SPR for the first time in their lives today. So let's give a little bit of the backstory about what this is, uh, why it's been released, and what some of the challenges or potential risks to doing this are. Well, you know, you hold on to a strategic petroleum reserve for strategic reasons, most significantly if in the time to defend your nation, right? If, God forbid, there's an adversary invading, you're going to need a lot of gas and oil to propel an uh, outside force, right? We're not used to having that some, something like that happen here in the United States, nor is it likely. But at the same time, you never know what's going to happen with this global sort of you know, we're, we're definitely moving toward a more isolationist policy in a lot of different parts of the world. And it doesn't, to me, make sense to just go ahead and sell off the crude oil. Another reason that you keep it around is if, God forbid, there is, um, you know, some natural disaster that prevents production for a period of time. You've got a strategic reserve on hand that you can still sort of heat and gas supply your country. You right. know, most countries are trying to keep, you know, from 10 to 20 to 30 days of oil supply in storage so that for these purposes, you know, it's something to lean on. It's kind of like the country's, it's like the national sort of first thing the country puts in its prepper basement, right? Is let's store a whole bunch of barrels of oil down there for starters. Um, so the what I thought was that it was really just gonna be a political football, which is something that's been done in the past. You know, the last we heard of the strategic petroleum reserve in the headlines was when, as crude oil was rallying back up through $35, $36, $37, the Trump administration added to it. And so that seemed like a good move. We didn't really know where the price of oil was going at the time, but it, we know it was a humongous discount. So he did the right thing and said, for the long term, we're going to keep some of this on hand. So now Biden releasing it, it changes the dynamic in the energy markets. And for me, the dynamic was, wow, you know, he, this is being sold into, you know, a 10% dip off of the highs in WTI. It's being sold after all the spreads in Brent and WTI pulled back from their extended levels into huge support. And it's being sold as the both WTI and Brent pull back into technical support. You look over at the tape today and what did the tape decide about the U.S. strategic sale now? to get the price of gasoline down. Well, there's a two sigma rally in Brent w, uh, crude oil on my screen. There's, like you said, a 3% rally in uh, WTI. There is a 2.8% rally in heating oil. And uh, jet fuel is up 2.5%. So, so far, now that the shot has been fired, the bell has been rung, the headline is out there, energy prices are higher. So whatever Joe Biden did today to try to knock the price of gasoline down, that was a failure. That, that ship has sailed. It is over. If the energy market was going to react negatively, it would have done so today and said, oh, no, there's a huge supply of crude coming on the market. What we've likely done is right. put ourselves in a tremendously disadvantageous position if we go to war. Not saying it's going to happen, but this is what the SPR is for. Right. So now the U.S. is selling out. Um, India is going to sell a portion of their strategic petroleum reserve, which, by the way, is all of 36 million barrels, 10 days worth of supply for the country of India. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of room to let a lot of oil out of that supply, does there? They're going to go ahead and do it anyway. 
China is claiming that they're going to sell some from their strategic oil reserves. What do you think they're going to do about making that commitment when they're making no commitment whatever whatsoever to any ESG push that's going on in the world? They're saying, yeah, yeah, we'll sell some too. You betcha, Joe, we'll sell some. We'll put some of our strategic oil right out there on the markets. No problem. My guess is they don't sell a barrel, right? It's, why would they? They're not committed to anything. They're joining the headline. They're making their competitor um, a lot weaker. So there's a lot of geopolitics stirring under the hood here, and the markets are reflecting that, right? So what exactly do you see? You, you touched on this, obviously, when you talk about the rise in those prices. What's the actual price driver? What are the folks who are buying and selling in front of Bloomberg terminals, in front of other terminals all around the world, just like you today? What are they thinking? What are they seeing? And what's driving that price action? I think that what they're thinking is, oh, great, the United States is going to be a large, invisible seller. Perfect, because I'm a buyer, right? So, like I was tweeting this morning, like if I, you know, if we were playing a game of Stratego here, strategic, uh, excuse me, Stratego here, where there's, you know, global politics and strategy involved, I would be saying if I were Saudi Arabia or Russia, I would be saying, you know what, I'm going to buy all of that oil from the United States myself, and I'm going to add it to my strategic petroleum reserve, because it looks like everything that they're doing over there to cut off their own supply is going to raise the price of energy. So this seems like a very telegraph trade where everybody in the world has been on the bid for oil. It's in a clear uptrend. We just got a dip, and now all of a sudden there's a big visible seller in the headlines. So the market is interpreting that saying, wow, we would love to buy some of that oil that the U.S. is putting up for sale. I don't know where it's coming from, but the market can bear it right now. It's not the kind of um, it's not the kind of a delicately supplied market that is oversupplied and just needs one more sale to push it over the edge. Quite rather, uh, quite the opposite. It is an undersupplied market that is looking to supply itself going into the winter months. So we've created a little bit of a dynamic here that is going to drive the price higher and sort of end its objective on the day that it was launched. So it was a really just a big waste of time in terms of trying to get the price of crude oil, uh, gasoline lower. And we're going to see what happens now. It was a one day event and it's over. Yeah, early this morning, I had a friend apoplectic about this messaging me saying, this isn't what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is for. This is for significant supply interruptions. You have a global security situation. Uh, you have a pipeline interruption. You have something that physically happens to reserves. This is not what it's for. Basically, this person, the view that they were articulating was, hey, you know, this is not when supply and demand dynamics change price in a way that you don't like. This is something that, you know, and many people, if, you re if you're reading on Twitter and seeing in the space who have been close to the energy markets are really reflecting kind of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's like kind of setting your neighbor's house on fire and, you know, offering buckets of water outside in front of the house to put it out. It's going to be, it's like, well, this isn't going to help the situation at all, right? The world has seen us punish energy production cut off the pipeline from Canada down here, right? All of the steps being taken are specifically bullish for the price of crude oil. So, you know, when they when the US creates this situation and then on the sort of, you know, political front comes out and does something to oppose it, everybody knows that's very disingenuous. Right. I mean, all of the talk between the real talk between oil traders here are that was a disingenuous move. 
right? That was the Biden administration doing something else that is going to put America at risk. And that's just the real talk that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to attribute motives, but when you look at this, obviously it seems to be a move that markets effectively said, hey, this just isn't going to work. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. You know, over the weekend, I was watching a, a video uh, with uh, Murray Stahl and Cormac Kinney on Real Vision, and it's actually about uh, commodities and diamonds trading on chain. But there's this one point in the uh, in the uh, video where, uh, where Murray Stahl is talking about petroleum production in the U.S., and he said, you know, the dirty secret that nobody seems to know is that there's not been any investment in energy infrastructure in terms of oil uh, in the United States for over a decade. Pretty striking point. It is a striking point, you know, and we went from being the world's biggest producer, you know, north of 11 million barrels a day, totally energy self-sufficient, and we got a new president and that turned upside down, you know, quite literally by a lot of those actions. And if you look at the actions of the market today, Ash, the, the one that speaks to me the most is, you know, Jan Feb WTI, um, that backed off from $2 backward dated all the way into 50 cents backward dated today, right? All the way into trend support, all the way into the prices that the refiners have been buying it. You look at Jan Feb Brent today, and I'm talking about obviously Jan 22 and Feb 22, that one month calendar spread widened. Right. So that one month calendar spread became more backward dated today. It traded from 70 cents out to a dollar. Right. So that's kind of the Brent market saying, yeah, you know what? We'll take that supply and swallow it up and potentially keep rallying. That's what the energy market said today. So it's a really interesting day. As you can see in the stock market, everything at the top of the leaderboard is oil and gas, oil services, oil exploration and production. Um, you know, and everything at the bottom of the leaderboard is technology, quite honestly, and gold. And so that's what we've got going on here, where we've got the market suddenly re-recognizing the next bout of inflation, it seems like. You know, the dollar continued rallying today, and excuse me, this week, in the last two days. Um, treasuries continue to sell off with yields going higher. Two-year paper, once again, the front of the curve, utterly bidless in an utter inflation fire alarm, if you ask me. That's what's going on, right? Short-term paper has gone bidless. Rates have gone higher, like you mentioned in the beginning. All of the bond market players are looking at what's going on on the screen, saying, if crude oil gets to the front and the leaderboard of the energy complex now, grains are sure going to follow because third of grains cost is energy production, and they're already in a predicament. And base metals are likely to follow, too, because they've been consolidating for a long time. So Biden may have actually reignited the energy, uh, excuse me, the entire commodity rally by getting this sort of sale off the market's mind. So now it's no longer a political football. It's no longer a statement or a headline. It's something that the market brushed by like a swim tackle in the NFL. And now we're going to go see what the upside looks like. 
By the way, talk a little bit about the backwardation situation that we see on the chart. Obviously, uh, this is uh, you know a circumstance that happens when you've got this uh, spread between the current uh, spot price uh, and the future spot price. Tell us a little bit about what that curve tells you. So it's the mechanism, Ash, whereby front month crude, the nearer to spot price, is more dear and pricier than when you go out on the calendar, right? The demand is in the near end. When the price gets higher, everybody sort of in the crude oil market does that last minute supplying of their energy needs. And it keeps the curve in a steep backwardation where front month trades over the back months. What happened today in the markets while WTI sort of became less backwardated, right, and pulled in towards 50 cents in Brent across the pond, they interpreted this as a tightening situation and the calendar spreads widened. And essentially, that's saying that the market is prepared to take on whatever supply is going on. So essentially, it is, um, it's a sign of strength in the energy markets because what you have when you invest in crude oil in a backward-dated market is positive carry. If you stay in the trade, futures trade, through a set of consecutive futures months, when you roll out the curve, you roll down in price, so you get a cheaper crude oil price, thus earning carry on that position. So what that does is attracts a lot of um, hedge fund and speculative investment because people say, well, here's a carry trade that the market is providing for me, right? I can earn just by staying in this thing if flat price stays level, right? And if I, I can, God forbid, outperform on the upside with flat price and roll into cheaper futures over a period of months, that trade really starts to compile. Right. So it's a really attractive looking trade. And I think it got even more attractive today. Yeah. Tony, what else are you looking at? I'm especially curious to know if you're thinking about what's happening. Uh, that big jump, 10 basis points, basically in 48 hours on the two year uh, Treasury yield, pretty significant move. Yeah, it seems like volatility has been picking up in treasuries. It feels like um, it's responding to the inflationary moves in the commodity markets once again. And the macro markets are starting to sing, Ash, because right now nobody has time to sort of, you know, um, uh, take close care with their execution, right? The higher the volatility, the more urgent trading becomes. People become less price sensitive and more get this order done because I need my position to change. It seems to me like there's a little bit more urgency in the commodity markets in the last couple of days. It's been unbelievable to see how we saw the dollar index rally for two weeks and commodities stand still. And we come in three weeks later on the third week of dollar rallying, and this time commodities are up and gone. Right? This is not something that would be happening normally. There's a very strong, powerful, physical commodity dynamic going on under the hood here. The dollar continues to rally, and the commodity market saying, "Well, we're not waiting around any longer, and we are up and gone because we've got physical situations tightening. We've got inflationary news on the tape." The bond market is having a small conniption over pending inflation, and commodities are up and gone. Yeah. You know, talking about all of this, uh, the psychology of trading these markets, all of the dislocations that potentially could result, I wanted to take a look actually at a conversation between Jamie McDonald and Mark Ritchie II that talks to exactly this point about the psychology of what happens when positions go against a trader. Let's take a look at the clip. And generally, this is a psych psychological issue. Yeah. So the one I hear, one of my favorite examples is, so let, let's say I, I, you and I like the same stock. Mm -hmm. And 
I like it. We both like it at 50. And it, I go, but look, if, if it goes to 45, you need to get out. It goes to 45, and you don't, and I do. Uh, and then six months later, it's at 30. And you call me back, you call me back or whatever, and we're talking about this. And yeah. your answer, inevitably, I've heard this so many times, is I'm waiting for it to come back to even. I'll get out right. when I'm at even. Because there's that psychological thing that I don't want to book a loss on something. Why? Oh, Why? Yeah. Yeah. This, is, this is part it of the... It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And people do this all the time. Even professionals, they'll, they'll carry inventory in their portfolio. Of, they're, they're nursing a dog right. when, when they should just cut the position yeah. and, and reallocate that capital. But the way I, I usually frame it for people is like, okay, if I brought you an idea and I said, best case scenario, you lose, you make nothing. And worst case scenario, you lose everything you put into it. Would you take it? <laughs> of course, everyone says no. But it's like, that is effectively what you're doing right, right now. Right, yeah. Saying, I'm just waiting around to break even. Are you right? Well, there you have it. Talking about sitting around waiting for something to break even. Sometimes the forecasts don't necessarily align with what actually shows up on the tape, which actually brings us right back to where we were, Tony, uh, which is some of these factors that we're looking at. Obviously, uh, the Fed the administration talking about the notion of inflation being transitory on the ground. Hey, right now, 61, cent, uh, per, 61 cents on the dollar more, 61% higher uh, than what you paid at the pump uh, 365 days ago today. Tell us, what are some of the other things you're looking at, market-based factors for inflation? Yeah, you know, um, break-evens have come alive again, Ash. We just had a nasty slide in break-evens. They were breaking out. They had a steep pullback. Everybody was saying, oh, you know, there's the deflationary beast rearing its ugly head again. And break-evens got right back on their horse and stabilized as the dollar broke out to a new high, as yields in the front end just completely collapsed. What is the best inflation hedge in the game that picked its head up this week? You guessed it, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Both of them look great so far. They're, they're participating with the rest of the inflationary tape. And I think that's really important if you're a cryptocurrency ranger to see them come back to life while the commodity complex comes back to life. Um, and then you've got the sort of lagging inflation indicator in the gold market. And I don't want to sound too smug, but I never left my feet when gold broke out. I never celebrated with the gold bugs at 1875 bid. And here we are $100 lower, back below 1800 and all the gold traders going, they got me again. Now, I don't mean to sound smug there, but you know this has been happening over and over and over and over again. So the people that are running into this buzzsaw are asking for a little bit of trouble at this point, right? We've been trying to stay away from that problem, and we've been focusing our energy on Ethereum and Bitcoin and NFTs in a more fun space, but notice how they've come back to life. Like this is the reason that you can say, here's a great day to, for example, why I'm in the Bitcoin trade and not in the lagging gold trade. It's as simple as that. Today's the perfect day to illustrate that point. Yeah, you can't argue with the tape. Bitcoin right now trading at 57,668. Uh, that's about up about 3% on a trailing 24-hour basis. Ethereum up right now 4,354. That's up 7.5% trailing 24 hours. Why is Ethereum getting out ahead of Bitcoin? Because there are no NFL players asking to get paid 100% in Bitcoin. And that is what Odell Beckham just did for the Los Angeles Rams. Somehow he has just facilitated to get paid all in Bitcoin. And I admire that. I do admire that because it's very forward thinking. It's very, 
It's very pioneer markety, but at the same time, you have to look at that as a sentiment indicator, right? I remember when Giselle Bunchen wanted to get paid in euro when it was went from 125 bid to at 80, right? A euro against the dollar, and so she top ticked that. You always got to worry that Odell Beckham top ticks it by trying to get paid all in Bitcoin. But at the same time, I try not to fault the guy because I've set up TG Macro to get paid in Bitcoin and Ethereum. So that's just another example of the way that the world is going. That just seems to me like a, a sort of big sentimental case that I have to just beware about if I'm long. That's all. Yeah, and maybe that's true in the short term, but longer term, to mix our sports metaphors here, it's about skating to where the puck is going. And I think that's right. That's the uh, that's the uh, super athlete indicator here. By the way, I'm so glad you brought this up because there's another clip that I wanted to show. We don't usually do two, but this is an important one that I really think people need to see on the Real Vision crypto side. This is Caitlin Long, great friend of Real Vision, founder and CEO of Ivanti Financial Group, uh, and Manaman Singh. Manaman uh, Singh is the, uh, Dr. Singh, is the senior finance, is a senior financial economist at the IMF. Very interesting conversation, the kind of conversation we like to cultivate here at Real Vision. Let's take a quick look. You can really get much of the stablecoin world, which is 130 billion or so, but these numbers are growing. Currently, there is a demand for this. I'm not getting into crypto. Yeah. Look, I work at the IMF. I'm allowed to speak a few things. So I'll, so I'll speak about stablecoins. The stablecoins, the word stable, can only arrive if you give them complete backing in a T0 framework, not T1, T2. You need to settle instantaneously. There's no CCP, there's no backstab, there's no nothing. Right. And unless they get reserves to central bank, the central bank reserves, they will never be stable. Okay, if, the, if, if that remains the status quo, then we will have very good quality, good collateral, high quality liquid asset, unless you tell me how you contain or constrain this growth. And that will gum up monetary policy because you'll have hundreds, 200, 500 more of good collateral, maybe even a trillion. I don't know where Ether is going, where DM is going. I don't know. I cannot keep up with so much. Bitcoin is much better informed, but the DeFi world is not stopping. Okay, so this is obviously a very fascinating technical conversation between Caitlin Long uh, and a senior IMF economist. He goes on to make some very subtle and nuanced points. Uh, he's a brilliant economist who's involved in doing some really interesting calculations uh, on the money supply and a series of other factors. Let's leave aside all the technical stuff for one second and just focus on that last line. DeFi is not stopping. This is an IMF economist. This is the last person you might expect to say this. These folks at the IMF who've been kind of bearish, let's be honest, about, for example, uh, what was happening down in El Salvador, this is a guy who's saying, this stuff is not going away. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely get on board um, with that gentleman. You know, I, I, for me, I'm kind of playing this as, you know, DeFi is being born out of the sort of, if you ask me, a little bit out of the NFT space where they're figuring out how to build, you know, payment systems and mechanisms into a lot of the products. And to me, DeFi just looks like something that's just getting started rather than something that's in its like sort of last innings. You know, it's a, it's a very clear, necessary component to Web 3.0. And I really feel like the world is pivoting to, to crypto or the latecomers are pivoting to crypto to be in the NFT space. And so I think that just opens up the whole, you know, to me, it just says, Ash, that the traffic is still going in that door and not coming out that door yet. So I kind of very much agree that DeFi is not going anywhere for now. Yeah, wherever you are on price, on a fundamental infrastructure build out level, we're just getting started here.
Yeah, absolutely. I've been listening to some really, really interesting um, podcasts on the NFT space and like uh, the gun is loaded and I am shopping. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, this turns into something significant, but I think it's a great way to just get your initial exposure and start building out your cryptocurrency portfolio. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Yeah, talking of loaded, we're loaded up with questions here, and I want to hit a couple of them. I know we're about to run over time, but I want to get to a couple of these because there's some really good ones here, as always. First one comes to us from the exchange. This is Real Vision's internal social network from Jens Christian B. A real short question, USDTRY question mark. He's talking about dollar Turkish lira. He goes on to say, big move, still room to go. Tony, what are your thoughts on this trade? This has been one of the most volatile currencies uh, over the last two weeks. Um, you know, it's it's one of those currencies that we kind of tipped over the brink. It feels like, you know, the dollar strength has a couple of, you know, I call it a wrecking ball because, you know, number one, it usually puts pressure on the commodity markets. But what it also does is shine the light on a lot of the weaker currencies out there. And the ones that have a massive dead pile and ones that may be suffering some, you know, corporate credit issues, et cetera, political um, issues, et cetera. And it looks like we ran into just that situation in Turkey. I agree. Technically speaking, I mean, through 10 lira, I mean, God knows where it could go. It looks like they are in a terrible predicament. Um, just judging from the path of the lira, though, in the last, you know, three to five years, I would imagine that, you know, this this sort of this move looks like it's blown its cork and may pull back into a reasonable level now. But I'm not that you know brushed up on the inside story about what's going on in Turkey or exactly why. I kind of throw that into the bin of another you know currency on the brink that just gets pushed over when the dollar rallies. Yeah. By the way, for people who are relatively new to currency markets, USDTRY. Uh, so that uh, rise in that number showing around 13 right now, 12.8. Uh, on my terminal right here. Uh, that's dollar strength, Turkish lira weakness. Mm -hmm. This is a really good question from uh, Ralph Humphrey. This one comes to us directly from the Real Vision site. Uh, he's picking up on something that you said earlier about the uh, market-based inflation indicators that you were seeing. He wants to ask a very specific question, which is this. Uh, based on your general themes, what are the top three commodities Tony would put new money into right now? Oil, oil, and oil. No, I, I'm, I'm, as you can see, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, mesmerized by what happened today in the energy markets. So I think that oil has got to be one of them, right? Or, or choose your uh, choose your mode of risk to be exposed to the fossil fuel markets. Whether you decide to buy an oil and gas stock or an oil commodity future, I think that that is a trade that you can have a real edge because never before in our history have we come after the supply with such intensity that we're doing now. So the price continues to reflect that. I think that's the one place you have to be exposed. 
I think uranium is getting a lot more interesting. We keep mentioning it that this, yeah. uh, you know, uranium becomes all the more viable when the other sources of energy fade with this ESG movement and the carbon neutral movement. So I got a feeling that there are going to be a lot of smart people looking for solutions in nuclear. Um, and I would love to be positioned for that if the nuclear, uh, if nuclear energy got phased back in in this country in any sensible way, that would be extremely bullish for the uranium markets. That would be, you know, the, the second place in commodities that I'd want to be. And the third place, I think, quite honestly, to keep it really simple, is the copper market. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're still going to plow into ESG. We still need all the metal in the world to build this battery infrastructure. The compelling picture for me in copper is that we're blasting through the highs around 10K. Now, I mean, I know it's consolidating, but if you take a step back from the chart and look at it at an extremely long-term basis, we are hugging the highs right now. We're going into all-time highs. The curve is as steeply backwardated as it's ever been, indicating a short amount of supply. And we've still got the entire energy infrastructure to build. So, you know, if, if we're going to start taking more and more copper supply out of the markets to build more battery farms and more, you know, power generation, I still think that copper is a pretty positive play. And, you know, the Freeport McMorans and the XME ETFs seem like the best places for me to get direct exposure. And I like to always stay in something that's liquid enough when I can wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I want out today. And those those three um, right now, those three markets, I guess the least of which might be uranium. If you invested in the uranium ETF URA, aside from that, you're talking about totally liquid markets that I could be comfortable with. And I think that's where you line up your commodity risk. Yeah. Here's a short question from Al Bensonator, uh, and one I'll take because I was just actually looking this up myself. How many barrels of oil does the U.S. use in one day? According to the EIA, that's the Energy Information Administration, uh, that number is about 18 million barrels per day. So there you have it. You can do the simple arithmetic. Uh, it's basically about two and a half days supply. Uh, it starts to look a little bit like an eyedropper uh, in the ocean. Uh, obviously, not a material impact, and this is precisely the fears that people who are very close uh, to the energy space, people like traders like Tony, uh, and then also people who are in the uh, in the production, exploration, transportation, uh, generation business, look at, and they go, you know, what's really the net effect of something like this? And by the way, we can see what the net effect is just based on the tape today. Yeah, not to mention when you partner up with four very small oil producers with very small strategic petroleum reserves, and you say the five of us are about to gang up on the markets, nobody takes it seriously. And that's what we've got on the tape today. Yeah, that's certainly the risk. Uh, final question. This one comes to us from No Ordinary Lives. This is from YouTube. Uh, and the question is, what's Tony's Bitcoin Ethereum waiting? And I'll make it a little more general than that. Just tell us, generally speaking, uh, how you think about your positioning uh, in the digital asset space? Well, um, I, that's a very good question. And I have a very specific answer, luckily, because I have a very specific mode of trading um, Bitcoin. And that is, I do anything that the opposite of the hodler laser eyes people do. You know, quite honestly, I think that they're a great, I think that they're a great community to prey on in this market right now because they're always providing liquidity at various levels. And I really want to be super tactical about everything in Bitcoin. The thing I love about Bitcoin to me first as an inflation hedge is when I look over, when I see inflationary headlines and inflationary price action, I look over at Bitcoin and say, is Bitcoin participating? 
And the answer has been, yeah, wow, look at Bitcoin go under these circumstances. So I trade it from a very um, tactical perspective because it also lines up as a sale to me quite often. You know, when Paul Paul Tudor Jones is on the screen at at 65, 66K, and we're talking about that it's a better inflation hedge than gold, and the world's greatest super trader is on the TV telling everyone in the country that he's trading this now instead of gold – you know, that's a really positive sentiment flywheel that I like to make sales into because I know that there's a whole entire community out there that's only ever looking up. Right. So to me, this is like a new dynamic where you get to trade really tactically. And I will also say to help um, answer more directly this question, I am operating at about a two to one Ethereum to Bitcoin uh, length right now. So I own a lot more Ethereum but the Ethereum isn't necessarily for a tactical trading position, quite honestly. The Ethereum is because I need an arsenal to pick off the NFTs that I want to pick off when I see them, you know, when I when I finally see something that I feel that I love, that is valuable, and that I don't mind if I part with all of the money that I buy it with. So when I find something like that lines up like that, I'm gonna start shooting the NFT gun and collecting a bunch of collectibles and seeing what happens. You know, I mean, I've done fairly well buying collectibles in my life. I know my signed Derek Jeters are going to be a lot more today than when they were in 1997, 98. Um, I've got a couple of guitars that are probably going to be worth a lot more today than the 20 years ago when I bought them. And I feel like the NFT space really lends itself to collectability like that, like on the level of wine collectability and, you know, art and car collectability and things that really matter to people. So that's why my Ethereum position is much bigger than my Bitcoin position. Part of it is a trading and part of it is an arsenal to be able to participate in the crypto world, if that's a good answer. Yeah. By the way, uh, in the unlikely event that you're joining us for the first time here on Real Vision today, and you've never seen Tony Greer before, the pinned tweet right now on his Twitter feed is a PTJ quote, I'm a trader, not an investor. That says it all. That tells the story, Ash. You know what I mean? I like to come in and make fresh donuts in the morning. I like to show up looking at fresh powder in the morning, you know, and I've never been one of those guys that's been agnostic or, or, or um, excuse me, I should say, I've never been one of those guys that's married a position and just been totally dogmatic about what will happen to it, right? I learned a long time ago from my dad that everything's a trade. So I approach this exactly the same way. Tony, we appreciate you showing up here every Tuesday to break fresh powder with us. Right on, man. I love doing it, Ash. So let's keep the streak alive. We're approaching Joe DiMaggio levels here. Let's go. The streak is alive. Tony, thank you so much again for joining us. Great to be here, Ash. Thanks for having me, my man. Thank you. And thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tomorrow, Maggie Lake sits down with Darius Dale, and the conversation, as always, continues on The Exchange. Thanks for joining us. Really exciting news is we're taking over Las Vegas on December the 9th to the 11th. We're joining forces with MGM themselves at the world-famous MGM Grand using their venues around Las Vegas itself, some of the best venues in the whole of the city, iconic places, to hold these incredible events. It's going to be all about the biggest revolution since the internet, blockchain. So join us at the takeover in Las Vegas. I'm going personally. It's the first event I've been to in 21 months. Realvision.com forward slash the takeover. There's some tickets left or there's a possibility to participate in the online version, the virtual event as well. I'm going to kick it all off with an interview with one of my favorite people in the world, one of the best thinkers 
a unique talent built high. So join us in Las Vegas for the takeover. There we go, king of the one takes. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.